again. Good morning and welcome to The Grove again and welcome to all of you who are worshiping with us online. We are so glad you're with us this morning. Now, we are in the middle of a sermon series where we are walking through and reading through and preaching through the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark, just as a recap, was written in a very particular time to a very particular group of people. It wasn't written to us, but it's also written for us. And so remembering who it was written to helps us understand the ways in which we can apply the writings of the Gospel of Mark to our life. Now, the Gospel of Mark was written to a group of Christians living in Rome who were experiencing extreme persecution. So all through this Gospel, what you see is this callback to and this reminder of the fact that Jesus is Lord, and in the midst of all of the hardship, all of the chaos, all of the storms of life, you can trust that he's still in control. And this is what we see time and again throughout the different stories that we read through the gospel. Now, this morning, what I want to do is I want to read through the story that we're going to talk about today, and I want to read it the way that we normally read the scripture, very flat and two-dimensional. My guess is for most of us, we read the scripture in a very boring way, which is why most of us don't like to read scripture, because it's like, like it kind of puts you to sleep a little bit. This is how we read scripture. So I want to do that for us this morning, just to start us off in a good place, and then we will jump in to maybe a different way to look at this story. So uh, close your eyes, get ready for story time. Here is the story out of Mark 10. They came to Jericho. As he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. So, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, I want to see. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately, he regained his sight and followed him on the way. Y'all remember that, that, um, that Visine commercial, dry, red, itchy eyes, you know, Ben Stein doing that. That's, I think that's how we read scripture. They came to Jericho as he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving. It's like there's, we miss all of like the emotion and all of the excitement and all of the energy. And also, I think by doing it that way, we miss everything that is available for us. So, if you'll permit me, uh, this isn't going to be a dramatic reading. We're not going to go that far. I have no black turtleneck and no, you know, what do they call it? The, the little hat to put on? The beret? That's what it is? Yeah. There's no bongo I'm going to sit on as we reread this. But I do think that if we have a different experience with it, maybe it'll do something different in us and with us and for us this morning. Okay, so as we start this scripture, the first thing that happens is it says that they came to Jericho. Now, for us, maybe you are familiar with this story, but for all of the first century listeners, they would have been infinitely familiar with this story. This is a city that the people of Israel came to when they first entered the promised land, being led by Joshua. 
Now, there was this contrast between all that the people of Israel had hoped for and what stood in their way. Jericho was this big city, if you remember, with big walls, and they had a lot of wealth and a lot of power, and they were what was standing between their, the people of Israel's way and all that God had promised for them. And so if you remember what they do, they don't attack the city, but they march around it in circles praising God and blowing their trumpets, and then the walls of Jericho fall. So here we have a person in, in interacting with this city that was kind of known to be a symbol for the current culture. We can look at it as a symbol of our current culture. Strong walls opposed to anything that God wants to do and here we find the story taking place. And so Jesus and his disciples are kind of on their way to Jerusalem. The whole gospel of Mark chronicles Jesus' movement from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. And this is about halfway. So this marks a turning point in the gospel of Mark. The first eight chapters, nine chapters of the gospel of Mark cover three years. The last eight chapters in the gospel of Mark cover one week. And we are getting into the week leading up to Jesus' death and ultimately resurrection. And so Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. To get to Jerusalem, they have to cross through and by Jericho. So this is what he sees. He sees this blind man. They see this blind man named Bartimaeus. And he's sitting by the roadside. And so one of the things that we should immediately recognize is that on the roadside is this picture of somebody who's like out of the way of life. He's not engaged in what's happening in the world. He's outside of this big city, these big walls, and he's just discarded along the side. And so Jesus and everybody else who would walk by would just pass him by, maybe throw some coins and just continue to move on. Now there's something specific about Bartimaeus that scripture tells us about. And they tell us that he's blind. Now the way that we typically read this story is Jesus heals a blind man. Isn't Jesus nice? And for most of us, because we don't have any sight impairment, we don't see ourselves in this story other than maybe at the end we should be like Jesus and, and be nice too. And I think that's why for many of us, Christianity feels incredibly dry and boring because we've been told that the goal of Christianity is just to be nicer and that's actually not what this story is about at all. It's not about being nice. Sure, it's good to be nice. Please be nice. But that's not what this story is about. I think what Mark wants us to see is ourself in the story. And so symbolically, the blind man is supposed to be an aspirational character for us. We're supposed to see ourselves in him. Not because we are physically blind, but because we're spiritually blind. So, for those of you, including myself, who have not been blind before, I want you to imagine the sensation of being blind. In fact, if you were to imitate blindness, you could put on an eye mask like this, right? So you put on one of these things. Some of you do this on a plane, so you don't have to interact with anybody. It's not because you want to go to sleep. It's just because then people will leave you alone. I don't say this from experience. But you put one of these on, and suddenly you are totally deprived of all visual inputs. You have lost the awareness to understand and comprehend what's happening around you. I'm not sure your senses may heighten a little bit. 
you might be able to hear things better than you were previously. Sight or sound and smell and taste, those things might heighten. But when we think about it from a spiritual standpoint, the way that it impacts us from a physical standpoint is we've lost any awareness of who we really are and how we really are. We're actually not in touch with what's going on in our hearts and in our souls. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I'm going to take that off before I fall off the stage. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where someone's maybe offered you feedback, whether it's been solicited or unsolicited, and it's cut to the core. Because in that moment, maybe you gained a little bit of sight into your actual spiritual condition, or they held up a mirror, so to speak, and you were confronted by maybe a reality of yourself that you didn't want to admit. I remember this moment probably over a decade ago when I was a youth pastor and um, as part of my youth pastor style, I would like joke a lot with our students. And I remember one time this one student made this offhanded comment. It was just like a dagger to my heart. And it was in the midst of a larger conversation and he was like, ha ha ha, don't make a mistake around Stephen or he'll make fun of you. And I was like, oh, like is like that came so easily out of his mouth. And it's like, is that, is that what I do? Is that what people assume and think about what I do? Like is, like I had been blind to my experience of myself upon other people. I didn't realize or recognize what it was like to be on the other side of me. And so in this moment, this comment is shared as a joke, but naming something that's actually there. And, and it hurt. And I'm like, well, how much more does it hurt to be on the other side of me because of the way that I act? And so that was a moment where I had to have like a hard, honest look at, at the way that I was blind to what was actually happening in my life. Now, there are large categories when we have blindness to how we impact other people. And kind of the in vogue word right now is narcissism. We like talking about narcissists and, nar- and narcissism in our society and our culture. But really, it's a spiritual blindness. You're unaware of yourself and your current spiritual reality. You're probably also unaware of your relational reality. When you're so consumed with what you want and your needs and all of you that you don't see the world as it actually is and you can't perceive how things are really happening, that's spiritual blindness. And no matter who we are, we all have some form of spiritual blindness in our life. There's some category of our life where we've got this on. Maybe it's in a particular relationship Maybe it's across all of your relationships. Maybe it's at work. There's something that we are not able to fully see as it actually is. So for us, instead of just passing by this story and it's like, oh yeah, it's about a blind man, next chapter, what if we started to recognize all of the ways this is us. We're blind to the actual state of our spiritual life. Now, this is what happens for Bartimaeus and Jesus. Bartimaeus is sitting by the roadside begging, hoping that people throw him some coins as they pass by in and out of the gates of the city of Jericho. But then he hears that Jesus is coming. 
And we don't know what he has heard about Jesus previously, but by this point in the gospel of Mark, word of Jesus has spread. We are in the 10th chapter, and so we are three years into the story of Jesus. So you can imagine that whispers and rumors and word has gotten to Bartimaeus. And this is maybe the part of the story that we, that we read most flat. He hears that Jesus is coming. He has spent his life in darkness and in blindness. And when he has a sense that Jesus is coming by, he shouts, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And my guess is, some of us have prayed a prayer like this before. God, help me. God, I need you. But it's been with just a tiny ounce of desperation. For most of us, we have been fortunate enough to avoid situations where we're actually truly desperate, particularly spiritually. We would love if God would work in our life, but we don't have to have God work in our life. Our prayers to God are like our lotto tickets. Would be nice. Wouldn't that be awesome if that hit? But I'll be okay if it doesn't. We don't depend on it. We don't need it. It's just a, a convenience. It's a luxury. But Bartimaeus is desperate. He, he has no other hope besides Jesus passing by. There is no other option for him in this life to have any sort of healing, to have his situation changed at all, except through a miracle and a touch of God. And so his prayer and his cry out to God does not sound like, uh, hey God, will you have mercy on me? There is like this guttural, like from the depths of your being, like Jesus! Have you ever prayed Jesus in that way? Have mercy on me! Because that would make us undignified. That would make us stand out. That would draw attention to ourselves in ways that we don't want to draw attention to. No, we don't, we don't need Jesus. We would like Jesus. We don't need Jesus. Until... Until life happens. And this is the story for a lot of us. We go through this life. And Christianity is convenient. And we like being nice. And then we find ourselves in a situation where we can't control what's happening. Somebody gets sick. Or somebody loses their job. Or we're at the risk of losing a relationship that we don't want to lose. And then life starts to become real. And we realize the limitations of ourselves and all of the ways that our intellect and our strength and all of the ways we control life, our wealth, whatever it may be, our charm, it starts to fail us. And that's oftentimes when I see people at church. That may not be your story, but that's a lot of people's story. Oh, how'd you start to come? Well, my mom got sick. And I came with her. Or it was in this moment that I actually started to come regularly because we lost a pregnancy and we didn't know where else to turn. It's when life actually gets real that we recognize how limited we actually are. 
And so Bartimaeus in this moment is already in that place and he cries out. And what does the world do to Bartimaeus? The same thing that it does to us when we try to lean into our faith. It's like, shh, don't do that. You're causing a scene. People are going to look at us. They sternly ordered him to be quiet. But what did he do? Bartimaeus got desperate. I mean, you can just imagine him sitting there. This is his one chance. It's like that Eminem song. If you knew you only had one chance, one shot. Would you cry out? If this was your one opportunity to save your marriage? Or to break the the chain of addiction that's ruining your life? Would you cry out? Are you just going to stay quiet and let Jesus walk by? What would it look like if we were actually willing to be desperate in our prayer life and desperate with God and just say, Jesus, we need you, and we mean it? Because we know that if it's up to us, we've got no hope. I both love and I hate preaching on this passage because it allows me to yell in church. (laughs) And because in the words of Paul, I am chief among sinners. This is my story. I pride myself on my ability to be self-sufficient. I mean, it's really going to take something for me to ask for help. You can ask my wife. It drives her crazy. Because I love knowing that I can do it, that I can handle things on my own. And ultimately, if I'm being really honest, it's so that I can stay in control. But that's just a facade. The story, it hits me because I see all that I should be doing and all of the ways that I should be interacting with God, and I don't pray those prayers. I don't pray the prayers that get truly honest and truly desperate about all that I want God to do in my life. I don't know if it's because I'm afraid he won't do it or if it's because I actually think that I can without God. But I'm the the Bartimaeus on the side of the road that's like, Jesus, hey, that's all right. I'll figure it out. Life's pretty good. I got enough coins that people have thrown me. I'll just continue to stumble around the rest of my life. I think there's an invitation for us to start to become more honest about how much influence and control we actually have over our life and to start naming all of the places and in the spaces where we actually need God to work. What would it look like if you invited God into a conversation about your finances instead of just white-knuckling it and racking up credit card debt after credit card debt? What would it look like to say, all right, God, I, I can't do this. We can't do this by ourselves. Show us a different way. This is what Bartimaeus does that we should learn from. He is desperate and honest and invites God in. And so what does Jesus do in response to that honesty and that desperation? 
Jesus stands still in the midst of all of the pain, the suffering, the chaos, and he says, call him here. There's no rejection. There's no, shh, I've got more important things going on. He says, call him here. He brings him closer. It's intimate and relational. And Jesus says, call him to me. And so all the people that quieted the man called the man. And they said, take heart. Get up. He's calling you. So there's a group of us here this morning who we just need to get a little bit louder. Or maybe a lot louder in our prayers and our desperation for Jesus. I'm in that category. But there are others of you who are like, I've been praying. I've been crying out. And I'm waiting for an answer. And so for you this morning, what Jesus says and what the men say to Bartimaeus is, is for you. Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. He's not far. Even if you can't feel him. He's with you. This is one of the things that I'm most struck by when you read the writings of the early Christian fathers and mothers, those people of deep, great faith that have impacted the Christian faith. In their journals that we have, so many of them talk about feeling far from God. Not just kind of the early Christian fathers and mothers, but like even Mother Teresa, if you read her personal journals, she talks about going decades without having any sense of assurance of God's presence and proximity to her. For some of you, maybe this is where you find yourself. Like it has been a quiet and lonely journey. And you pray, but it kind of feels like they hit the ceiling and come back down. And so may I remind you that you can take heart and that you can get up because he's calling you. And he's with you in these moments. The moments when you're afraid, the moments when you feel alone, the moments when you are unsure and uncertain about what to do next. He's calling you to him. And so, throwing off his cloak, his one possession, all that he owns, the cloak that he would lay in front of himself as he sat by the road that people would throw coins on, that he would then gather to himself as a means to provide for himself his entire livelihood, all that he has in this life, he throws off and he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And then Jesus asked him the question that I think Jesus asks each one of us. What do you want me to do for you? This is a question that Jesus asked people all throughout the gospels. What are you looking for? What do you need? What do you want me to do for you? And what would happen if we actually asked ourselves that question. Sometimes it might be a short list, probably an indication of further spiritual blindness. That's my situation most of the time. I actually don't put much on this list. It's like when you'd ask me, hey, what do you need? I don't know. I'm not really that sure. I'm not sure that I could put much on the list. But if I started to get honest and take a different inventory of my spiritual life, there's actually a lot I want God to do for me. There's a lot that I want God to do in my life and with this church. And so maybe we should think differently, reflect harder, be more honest 
about this question, what do you want me to do for you? Because Bartimaeus knows, and he answers. And he says, Rabbi, teacher, I want to see. And for Bartimaeus, it's the restoration of his physical sight. But for us, maybe it's to actually see the world as it really is, to see our world as it really is, to see our heart, our families, our places of employment, our relationships as they really are, to be aware of what's actually going on so that we can accurately name all of the ways and the places and the spaces in which we need God to work. For those of you who've been trying to do it on your own, your whole life. My guess is it's worked in some ways, maybe in a lot of ways. But in the ways that really matter, perhaps you try a different approach. Perhaps you start to reconsider how much you actually need God and what you want him to do for you. Because when you name it, this is the response that we get. Jesus says to him, go, your faith has made you well. It can also be read, go, your faith has saved you. Or go, your faith has healed you. That word in Greek is sozo. And it means all of those things wrapped in one. Because in that context, there is no distinction or differentiation between your physical life and your spiritual life and your emotional life. It's all one. And so on whatever dimension you are looking to receive sight, on whatever dimension that you were desiring wholeness and healing, it's faith that provides it. And not just an intellectual assent that I know something about God, but a total dependence and trust and belief that God is active and at work in your life. And then this is how the story ends. Immediately, he regained his sight and followed him on the way. Now, there's another little play on words that Mark does here because the way that we see this story begin, Bartimaeus is sitting on the side of the road or on the side of the way. And at the end of the story, what we see is Bartimaeus no longer on the side of the way, but on the way. And if you remember from previous sermons, one of the early descriptions of Christianity was not called Christianity. It was called the way. And so here, Mark is showing us what it looks like to get on the way and to follow Jesus. It's to cry out, to get desperate, to admit and acknowledge our dependence on God, to name the ways that we are incapable of solving all of our own problems in this life, to invite God in, to restore our sight, to see things as they actually are, and then to get up and to follow him. It's not a magic wand. It's not a silver bullet or special pill. But it's a daily journey. It's a daily honesty the daily recognition of our need and dependence on God. That's why we sing this song just before, yet not I, but through Christ in me. The epitome of spiritual narcissism 
is the unwillingness or inability to recognize your dependence and need for God. If your spiritual journey is not taking you to a place of deeper humility, then you're not on the right path. When we allow our intellectual learnings and our spiritual formation to bolster us up and to make us haughty or arrogant or prideful, to have a better vantage point to point out all of the ways that everybody else is making mistakes, that is not the path that follows Jesus. The path that follows him recognizes more and more and more all of the ways that we need him, all of the ways that we are incapable on our own. So my friends, as we wrap this sermon, would you dare to be desperate? Would you? Would you dare to name the places where you need God to work? And allow that humility and that honesty to drive you deeper into a relationship with him. I'm going to do my best to try. And I hope you will too. Let's pray. Dear Lord, yet not I, but Christ in me. This is our prayer, God. Help us to recognize all of the ways that we are spiritually blind. All of the ways that we can't see life as it really is. God, help us to lean into you, to trust in you, and to cry out to you. In the face of embarrassment or indignation or ridicule, God, help us to continue to cry and to continue to invite you into our lives. Because we know that when you do, when we do, you invite us in and you heal us. We pray this in your name. Amen.